Thank you, Tim, for reading our scripture tonight, and thank you for being here. Very grateful for your presence this evening. We're very thankful for the opportunity to be together tonight, and it's our prayer that our worship service tonight will be pleasing to God and beneficial to us. If you're visiting, as always, we invite you to come back. We're very grateful for your presence tonight. We would certainly invite you to come back at every opportunity that you have. Very grateful for the number of visitors that we have on a weekly basis, and so uh, tonight is no exception. We're going to be looking at Romans chapter 3, verses 23 through 26 tonight as we think about the subject, God's covering for sin. The book of Romans is a great book in the New Testament, and it underscores the power of God's redemptive work. You remember in Romans chapter 5, verse 6, Paul said, When we were yet without strength, Christ died for the ungodly. In verse 8, Paul would say, God commends his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus was and is God's covering for sin. That's what Paul says, and we're going to look at that in depth in just a moment in Romans chapter 3. I think in order to maybe appreciate God's covering for sin, first and foremost, we have to understand something about the problem of sin. And I guess as we begin our study tonight, as we think about the problem of sin, there are some things that I would call attention to tonight in our study as we think about sin and the problem of it. And first and foremost... I would suggest to you that it is a universal problem. It touches every race. There is no race unaffected by the problem of sin. You remember Solomon many, many years ago in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 46, said in the long ago, there is no one who does not sin. Paul very effectively deals with the problem of sin, the universal nature of sin, In chapter 1 of the book of Romans, he says that the Gentile world, that they're under sin. In chapter 2, his conclusion is the Jewish world, they too are under sin. And so in chapter 3, he would say there is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so we think about how the problem of sin is universal. It touches every race And it also touches every region. There is no continent on planet earth that has escaped the effects of sin. Just a moment ago I cited 1 Kings chapter 8 verse 46. The gospel is a universal message, isn't it? You remember in Matthew chapter 28 verse 19. When Jesus gave the great commission he said, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations in recognition of the fact that all nations have been affected by sin. And then I think about it in Acts chapter 1 when Luke records for us the statement made by Jesus before ascending to heaven. He said to the apostles that they would be endowed from power from on high. And he said, you shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. And then he said, unto the end of the earth. The gospel is intended to reach every continent. It is intended to reach the world. So we talk about the universal problem of sin. 
But then secondly, I would suggest it is an undeniable problem. When we talk about sin, the effects, the ravages of sin are seen everywhere, aren't they? I mean, we look around in the world today and we see the problem of sin and the causes of many, many problems physically. Think about, people how, think about how many people in our world today have been affected physically, emotionally, and mentally by sin. And then, of course, we look at Romans chapter 5 in verse 12, where the Apostle Paul would tell us, through one man sin entered into the world and death by sin. The physical effects of sin recognized in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve transgressed the law of God. In so doing, they brought death upon themselves. Physical death, yes, but also spiritual death. We talk about the, unde the undeniable problem of sin. And the fact that it is reflected physically, but also spiritually. You remember Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 59, verses 1 and 2 said that sin is what separates us from God. If you go back to the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve transgressed God's law, death was the result. Man died, yes, physically, began to die physically. More importantly, however, man died spiritually. And so what was needed was reconciliation. There was alienation because of sin. Jesus was sent in order to reconcile the human family. And so sin has left the world in which we live a horrible mess. I mean, look around in the world today and we talk about the physical, the mental, the emotional and spiritual problems that have been caused by sin. The world tonight is filled with hatred and envy and jealousy and bitterness. And there are thefts that go on regularly all throughout our world. And then we talk about covetousness and adultery. And then what about murder? I mean, the effects of sin, undeniable. But then there's a third thing that I would share with you in our study. And that is, when we talk about the problem of sin, it is unfavorable. And the reason is because those who are in sin, those who live in sin, are living dangerously. You ever thought about the danger of living in sin? More importantly, have you ever thought about the danger of being lost in sin? Just a moment ago, Paul would say, and we read a moment ago in Romans 3, verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is a penalty attached to sin. That penalty is described by Paul as death in Romans chapter 6, verse 23. Paul wrote, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. I think about in Ephesians chapter 2, in verse 1, Paul wrote to the saints in Ephesus, and he said, and you has he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Those who are living in sin are literally, as Paul would say, a walking corpse. They're alive, but they're dead. Dead spiritually. And then in verse 12, Paul would say, that those who are outside a covenant relationship with the Lord, they're without hope and without God in the world. Is there anything worse than living in sin? 
The only thing worse than living in sin is dying in sin. To recognize that there's absolutely no hope. As Paul would say, to be without hope and to be without God. It's a terrible plight. Now, what I want us to do tonight, after talking for a moment or two about the problem of sin, I want you to think with me for a minute or two about the provisions of sin. Because in Romans chapter 3, Paul in a very effective way deals with the provisions for sin. And I want to begin by first of all talking about his plan of redemption. So with that in mind, look if you would at verse 23 again. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God set forth to be a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, as we think about the plan of redemption, a couple of things here. First, we have to appreciate the justness or the justice or justness of God, I guess I should say. God is a holy and just being, isn't He? You remember in, in Leviticus chapter 11 in verse 46, God said many, many years ago, I am holy. In Isaiah chapter 6, the Bible talks about the holiness of God and God sitting upon His throne, high and lifted up. In 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter talks about, again, the holiness of God. So when we think about the holiness and justness of God, here's the question. How can God forgive sin and yet at the same time maintain His justness and His justness, His justice. And the answer is Jesus Christ. That's why when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, God began unveiling His redemptive plan. Now God had that plan in place before the world ever began. You remember in 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter would say that we have been redeemed not by corruptible things like silver and gold, but rather by the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without spot and without blemish. He said, who verily was foreordained before the world began, but was manifest in these last times for you. God had a plan created in place before He ever made man, before He ever laid the foundations of the world. And Jesus was His answer to the problem of sin. So we talk about God is a just and holy God. God is just, but how is He going to maintain His justice? Well, again, the answer is Jesus. So when mankind sinned in the Garden of Eden, what did He do? Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the promised seed. The announcement made that a Redeemer would be coming into the world. And so down in chapter 12 of the book of Genesis, God called upon a man by the name of Abraham. Abraham became the father of the Hebrew nation. 
And God said to Abraham, In you shall all nations, all families of the earth be blessed. In other words, what God was saying is, through your posterity, the human family will enjoy the blessings of redemption. Now, that was ultimately realized in Jesus Christ, wasn't it? You remember in Galatians chapter 3, in verse 29, Paul said, If you're Christ, then you're Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What promise? The promise made in Genesis chapter 12. A promise made 2,000 years before Jesus ever came to earth. So God, God had a plan in place to redeem the human family. He began unfolding this redemptive plan bit by bit and piece by piece. And over the course of literally hundreds of years, the prophets foretold of the coming of the Messiah, the one who would ultimately satisfy the scales of divine justice so that God could be just, as Paul said, and the justifier of those who believe in Jesus. Now, there's a second thing I want you to see. First, we talk about the plan of redemption. That plan of redemption articulated by God God was the architect, Jesus the agent by which that plan was consummated. The person of redemption, as you well know, was Jesus. Do you remember the words of Paul in Ephesians 1 verse 7 when he said, In Him that is in Christ we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. Now, in the Old Testament we have a picture of the redemptive work of Jesus. I want you to go back with me for a moment to the book of Leviticus in chapter 16. In Leviticus chapter 16, we have a picture, a type, if you please, of the redemptive work of Christ through His sacrificial blood. In this context, Moses is writing about the great day of atonement. The Day of Atonement occurred annually. And it was probably the high point in the Jewish calendar. And in Leviticus chapter 16, very specific instructions are given regarding the work of the high priest on this day. Let me just read for you some verses in Leviticus chapter 16. And... We talk about the tabernacle. And you remember in the tabernacle, according to the Old Testament, there were two compartments. There was the holy place and the most holy place. In the most holy place, you had the Ark of the Covenant. Housed within the Ark of the Covenant, you had a pot of manna. And we think about God providing manna for the children of Israel as they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And that pot signified to them to trust in God, to look to Him for provisions, that God would ultimately take care of them. And then a second thing that was in the ark was Aaron's rod. And you remember, do you remember the children of Israel when they rebelled against the authority of Moses and Aaron? And God ultimately put down that insurrection. And so Aaron's rod was placed in the ark reminding the children of Israel to respect authority. 
But then also a third thing, you have the Ten Commandments. Those two tablets of stone. So you have all this in the Ark of the Covenant. Now the high priest is going to go into the most holy place on the Day of Atonement. On that day, he is going to sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. So let me just read for you some verses. In verse 2, Leviticus chapter 16, God said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at simply any time into the holy place inside the veil. Before the mercy seat, which is the ark, lest he die, for I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. So you had the presence of God signified there, didn't you? Drop down, look at verse 5. Instructions were given to take from the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats as a sin offering, one ram as a burnt offering. In verse 6, Aaron was to offer the bull as a sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat on which the Lord's lot fell and offer it as a sin offering. Drop down, look at verse 13. In verse 13, well, verse 12 God said, you shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from the altar before the Lord with his hands full of sweet incense, beaten fine, and bring it inside the veil. And he shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the testimony, lest he die. You remember, no one could see the face of God. Death would be the penalty. And then he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat. On the east side and before the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. He shall kill the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people. Bring its blood inside the veil. Do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bull and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. So he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions. For all their sins, and so he shall do for the tabernacle of meeting, which remains among them in the midst of their uncleanness. So think about this for a minute. You've got the Ark of the Covenant. Inside the Ark of the Covenant, you have the Ten Commandments. Could anyone fulfill the Ten Commandments in their entirety? What happened if they didn't? You remember Galatians chapter 3, verse 10? Curse, a curse was pronounced upon them unless they continued in all things written in the book. So, the mercy seat, which is really, we talk about the word propitiation. Paul uses that word in Romans chapter 3. The word propitiation means covering. And so you have this lid over the Ark of the Covenant. Aaron is sprinkling blood on that lid. And that covering, in a sense, was used to veil the eyes of God from the condemnation associated with the law. That blood was sprinkled in an effort to atone for the sins of the people. But here's the catch. That had to be done every year until the coming of Christ. 
The Hebrew writer said, it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. You remember that? Hebrews chapter 10 at verse 4. And so this was done annually. A blood sacrifice was made on behalf of the children of Israel. And not just for the children of Israel, but also for the high priest and his family. The Hebrew writer said in Hebrews chapter 7, For such a high priest became us, who was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, who needs not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. So here is Aaron and here are subsequent high priests. They are making atonement on behalf of the people. And not only for the people, the children of Israel, but also for themselves and their family members. So in Leviticus chapter 16, the shedding of, of the blood of those animals was a type of the shedding of the blood of Christ that would ultimately atone for sin. Now drop down if you would. Look at verse 20. There's a second goat involved. He said, when he has made an end of atonement for the holy place, the tabernacle of meeting, and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions, concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat, and shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. Verse 22. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to an uninhabited land, and he shall, release, he shall release the goat in the wilderness. So think about this for a minute. On the one hand, you have a blood sacrifice to atone for the sins of the people. That blood sacrifice was in, was in anticipation of the coming of the blood of Jesus. But then also you have this scapegoat. And Aaron would lay his hands on that scapegoat. He would confess the sins of the people on the head of that scapegoat. And then that goat would be led away into the wilderness. Well, what did that signify? The removal of sin from among the children of Israel. What did Jesus do on the cross? He shed his blood, right? Jesus went to the cross on our behalf. He shed his blood, that blood effectively atones for our sins. We enjoy propitiation. And the beauty of that blood, look at Romans chapter 3 very quickly. We talk about a picture of the redemptive work, but we also think in connection with that, the power of the redemptive work of Christ. Because listen again to what Paul said. All have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth to be a propitiation. Here's the deal. God meets man where? At the cross, doesn't He? Jesus shed His blood on the cross of Calvary. That blood was shed. And in effect, the blood went backward all the way to Adam. Listen again to what he said. God set Jesus forth to be a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. 
There was a reminder of sin every year. That's what the, that's what the Hebrew writer said in Hebrews 10.3. The blood of bulls and goats could not take away sin. So all of those animal sacrifices and all the sacrifices that were made on the Day of Atonement, all of those, all of those sacrifices pointed to the coming of the death of Jesus on Calvary's cross. So that when Jesus died, God could maintain His justness, but also satisfy the scales of justice. Now, can you imagine the plight of living under the Mosaic Dispensation? All of the sacrifices and the annual remembrance of sin, and yet through the finished work of Jesus, we have the fullness of forgiveness, don't we? Paul said, in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace. Peter said, we've been redeemed, not with corruptible things, but rather with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb, without spot and without blemish. And you can go back and look at the book of Exodus in chapter 12 when God instituted the Passover. And Jesus in that context is identified as our, well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, He's identified as our Passover lamb, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I'm sorry, or chapter 5, I'll get it right in a minute. Last week in our study, I talked about the importance of Bible study. You remember that? And I talked about how essential it is to have some working knowledge of the Old Testament and how difficult it is to understand the New Testament if you don't have some basic fundamental knowledge of the Old Covenant. Leviticus chapter 16 is a perfect example of that. Because when we talk about propitiation and the mercy seat and Jesus being God's covering for sin, it all ties back to the Old Testament. As I said last week, the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. The New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. And so, in looking at Romans chapter 3, we have God's plan of redemption. We have His picture of redemption. And then there is a third thing. Let me just share one other thing very quickly. The word propitiation. Our English word comes from a Latin term. And that term suggests to render favorable, gracious. And you think about Jesus being our propitiation. Four times in the New Testament the word propitiation is used. Through the finished work of Jesus, God's wrath has been averted and we enjoy the blessings of salvation, don't we? Fully and freely. Now there's a, another thing I want to share very quickly and that is the place of redemption. Verse 23 again, Paul said, All have sinned, fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Redemption 
as I said a moment ago, was made possible through the finished work of Christ. Now, God was the architect of the redemptive plan. Jesus, however, was the one who consummated that plan. And Paul is saying here that the place where people are redeemed is in Jesus. Listen to him again. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Drop down, look at verse 26. To demonstrate at the present time His righteousness that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What Paul is saying is when we respond to that system of faith, the gospel, and obey it, when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, repent of our sins, confess His name, and are baptized into Jesus Christ, then we enjoy the blessings of redemption, don't we? We enjoy forgiveness. As the Hebrew writer said, I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, their sins and their iniquities. I will remember no more. Now, the place of redemption is in Christ. And it's also in the church of Christ. You remember Romans chapter 16, verse 16, where Paul said the churches of Christ salute you? Paul there talking about the church that belongs to Christ. So when we enjoy the redemptive work of God, His blood, the benefits of His blood, when we obey the gospel, the Bible says that we are added to that divine body. It's in that divine body that we enjoy all spiritual blessings, that we are numbered among the saved, Ephesians 5, verse 25, and we have the hope of life eternal. So I want to close tonight by saying that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is God's answer to the problem of sin. And there are a lot of people in our world today who are battling sin. There are many, many people in our world today who are living in sin. And the only way to effectively deal with the problem of sin is Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Luke said in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, neither is there salvation in any other. There is no other name unto heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And so you think about what Jesus has done on our behalf. I mentioned a moment ago at the onset of our lesson, Romans chapter 5, verse 8. Paul said, God commends His own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In Romans chapter 5 and about verse 20, Paul would say, where sin abounds, grace abounds, listen to him, much more. All he's saying there is that God's grace has the ability to cover all and any of your sins. His blood has that kind of power. And so tonight if you're here, and you're in need of the blood of Christ, you've never obeyed the gospel, I would encourage you to put your faith and trust in Him, to do as they did on Pentecost Day, to repent and be baptized. In Romans chapter 6, Paul talks about the importance of baptism. He said that we're baptized into the death of Christ, and the reason is because that's where the blood was shed. John 19, 34 and 35. 
And the only way to appropriate that blood is to be baptized into Jesus. When we're baptized into Jesus Christ, we become, as Paul said, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. We enjoy or we are the recipients of that promise made to Abraham 4,000 years ago. If you're here tonight and you're not faithful to the cause of Christ and you need to be restored, you'd like us to pray with you and for you tonight, won't you do so? Won't you come as we stand and sing?